and welcome back. This is the 38th episode of AIR, an interview podcast series with a different theme each episode. This month I'm joined by producer and sound artist Seth Horvitz, also known as R. Rose. Initially bored with dance music early on, Seth had in mind to leave the club scene behind altogether before his studies at Mills College gave him a change of heart. He came back to techno, albeit in a completely new way. His project and persona, R. Rose, has become known for a forward-thinking take on music of all kinds, sometimes DJing interesting and abstract forms of techno, sometimes crafting experimental compositions that tap into drone and minimalism, or working with instruments to compose or even reinterpret classical pieces in a totally singular way. Whatever form the music takes, our Rose is an incredibly thoughtful artist, and together we dig into the precise and particular processes of composition, reinterpretation, and performance. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really happy to get the chance to talk to you. Sure. It's been a while, I guess, that we've been trying to plan this. Yeah. Um, so, of course, I've been reading a lot to prepare for our talk today. Um, and I was reading the interview that you did with RA, I think it was last year. And you were talking about how in your early days before you adopted your RO's persona, you considered yourself a DJ and a techno musician. And then after you'd been to school, you'd been thinking about leaving techno behind to become a sound artist or a composer. And then you ended up kind of going back to techno in a different way. Um, but in the interview, you never really settled on where you landed. So I guess I'm wondering today, would you consider yourself a DJ, a sound artist or a composer? I think I just found a way to put all those things together. Um, and I guess I didn't, I thought, I kind of thought I was doing that before, but it didn't feel like it was all really integrated. It felt a little piecemeal and scattered and not cohesive the way I was approaching it. So I think I found a way to approach it that feels cohesive. All those things factor in somehow you know, to mm -hmm. what I'm doing. And I can, I feel like I can more easily go from, you know, doing some pipe organ thing in a church to doing a club thing. And I feel that there's a connection and yet they're separate at the same time. It just feels the whole project 
to me just feels more cohesive and makes a lot more sense, even even though I'm still doing a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. So can you tell me a bit about maybe the differences that you perceive or perceived previously in these different titles? Um, like what were you thinking was the difference between, you know, a, a sound artist and a composer or a DJ and a composer? Well, really, it's just about the kind of venue that you're performing in. Honestly, it's not because there's, I mean, there's an element of sound art in all DJing and in all um, electronic music making. But I think what I envisioned was that I would just not be doing dance music in clubs, basically. And now, does it feel like a relief sort of in some way to be able to kind of hop between these different titles and have it all feel kind of natural to you rather than feeling like you're stuck in a certain role? Yeah, it feels it feels more fluid and more natural now. And I'm sort of comfortable with all those labels just sort of mixing and matching because because they seem to be integrated in a meaningful way. Before I was just I was I I think I spent a lot of time just trying to trying to kind of rebel and constantly push out on the boundaries of things, which is sort of a common um trope everyone wants to be pushing the boundaries blah 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 but that's kind of a cliche I think I mean I I actually feel like now I'm um, comfortable with boundaries instead of constantly trying to push them and that actually kind of that inward like working inside of boundaries allows you to discover um, exciting new places that um, are in this like limited space it's like zooming in instead of zooming out maybe you know do you think that you can credit that change to something? Um, did something change in your way of thinking or your way of sort of perceiving yourself or your artistic persona that made you sort of more comfortable with these boundaries that you realize that you have? Well, I think it was it was my path sort of back to school to study avant-garde music, to engage with the people who've been in that world for decades, to really kind of go to the source of that stuff. And feel like I really grasp it on a deeper level. Whereas I think when I got started in the early 90s, I was just sort of, I loved all kinds of weird music and the weirder the better. And I just wanted to, I I just, I, I think my understanding just wasn't as deep. So the way I, I wasn't able to integrate it in such a meaningful way, you know, as just a DJ and a listener, you know, I could go on the radio and collage all kinds of weird stuff together. And, you know, sometimes that worked, sometimes it didn't. But I think that there's just um, the cohesion comes from just taking the time to study and learn and be more patient with how I approach the music. So, you know, for example, I spent like a couple of weeks analyzing one little piece of a piano by Brahms you know, just like a five minute piece. And I just went note by note and chord by chord and really got into all the subtleties of that. And that kind of approach has really had a big impact on how I produce music and how I listen to music and all this stuff, because um, it just, it increases my patience and the ability to kind of go really deep into the nuances of things. Mm -hmm. Do you feel like these days, the, the titles thing is not really important. Like you're not really seeking out to do one more than the other or seeking out to be called one thing more than the other. Yeah. I mean, I think that in general, sort of 
whether it comes to labels about what kind of artist I am or, um, you know, even gender, right? Like I'm kind of okay with it being mixed up and not really um, having one, you know, declaring one specific thing. Um, but I guess the one thing I will say that I, I, I get annoyed if I'm referred first as a DJ, uh-huh. <laughs> I will say that there is something about that, that um, as much as I love and respect DJing, being referred to a DJ first somehow seems to undercut a little bit some of the other stuff I do. So if uh, if there's a reference to me in the press that says DJ first, then I try and ask to like, you know, say producer or musician or electronic musician or something before DJ, because um, the the act of DJing is less important to me than the act of, you know, creating music and composing and producing mm-hmm. music and sounds. So you seem to be exploring so much, so many, like a a varied amount of things these days. Um, Like I was looking on Twitter and I I was seeing that you did this big organ performance. Um, You're doing, you know, instrumental stuff and then also obviously still DJing. So can you talk about the different kinds of shows that you're doing and maybe how they differ from one another in terms of how you approach them? Sure. I think there's, there's always this I think all of them are connected in a way by this sort of deep investigation into the limits of sound that can be created with whatever medium and how I might perceive those things and what kinds of, I'm always trying to sort of confuse my, my senses somehow and, um, and then sort of evaluate that and push that as far as I can go. So when I was working with the pipe organ, for example, it was just so amazing to have the keys to this church and spend a couple of nights just trying out everything I could imagine with different combinations of things. And then just walking around the church, you know, cause I can just let it play, just listen to how it's affecting me. Um, and, you know, sort of trying to get the organ to sound not like an organ. And um, it's actually not that hard because it's such a huge instrument with so many different sonic possibilities you know the 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 function of things is i guess what delineates them you know if i'm going to play in a club where people are dancing there's certain functional <laughs> restrictions i have to place on what i'm going to do but i found that what i what i like to do when i'm djing and playing dance music in a club is see sometimes you know how far away can i get from the typical notion of techno music and still get people really dancing and going crazy. So, you know, the kind of thing that I tend to explore is like take something that's a sort of familiar techno um, kind of rhythm, a track with something that's very recognizable as techno and sort of fade that into some kind of um, like avant-garde drone piece without any beats and then maybe just 
and and make that very gradual thing and then bring in just maybe the bass drum from something like really filter down so i can slowly turn it before you know it you're just basically listening to like some piece of avant-garde music with a th- a very subtle thump under it and people can still go crazy to that. Mm. That makes me happy when I get to that moment where I can do something like that in the middle of a set and say like, actually um, it's, it's all about context in a way, how you frame things. Right. So Mm -hmm. if you kind of set, I think it's all a, a lot about the interactions, what comes before and after and how you set up, these things so you can um, prepare someone for that and then you have a sound that's so enveloping that if you just give it a little bit of a pulse it keeps the momentum and people keep dancing and then you can move in and out of that but you know so I like to connect the worlds that way but what differentiates them is more just sort of the function I don't have to think about whether people are dancing or not if it's in a church Um, (laughs) and uh, I think the approach to sound is pretty similar though right and so can you tell me a bit more about this organ show that you were playing? Because I, I, I read about it, but I couldn't really get like a super clear idea of what, what went on. So from what I understood, um, there was like a selection of organs and one had sort of this control technology that could be used kind of like a synthesizer or am I just, I totally misunderstood that. Um, not exactly. So there's a, there's a composer duo named Gamut Inc. Mm-hmm. based in Berlin. They actually built their own, mechanical instruments that are really interesting these machines that they put on stage and control with their computers Um, so their whole specialty is mechanical instruments and that's something i've been interested in a long time because i did my master's thesis with the computer controlled piano and um, actually the way we met was somebody invited me to do my um, automated piano performance in berlin at a small space called spectrum and this other group gamut inc they were invited as well. We didn't know each other before. So we did the, you know, the the concert together. And afterwards they asked me if I'd want to, maybe they told me about what they do and that they have this project with pipe organs and asked me if I'd want to adapt some of the piano pieces to organ. Okay. So their thing is, um, well, as it turns out, there are a lot of pipe organs in churches that have uh a MIDI input, which is, if you know what MIDI is, it's just a simple language that was invented in the 80s for computers or instruments to sort of send messages to control each other. So basically, you can connect a computer to the organ and send it which notes to play at what time. You can control it with the computer um, instead of playing the keyboard. So it turns out a lot of pipe organs in churches have this capability. And the idea with, I guess there were two reasons for this initially one was it makes it easier for the tuner to work because they could go around the church and control the organ from a distance and hear the organ for tuning but also this idea that you wouldn't have to have the organist all the time playing you could program the organ to just play the songs in the church without having someone actually there right but of course you can use that capability to do extremely experimental music um, but the, the capability is just simply to control it with a computer, but that means you could send it thousands of notes at the same time. You could do all sorts of things that the human hands can't do on the keyboard, but really what you can control with the computer is just which notes. And in some cases you can control the stops, like which sets of pipes are opening and closing mm-hmm. and things like that. And so 
yeah, Gamut Inc. have sort of compiled a list of of churches that that have this capability, and they've uh, organized quite a few concerts where they've invited different artists to compose music. Okay. So this particular recent performance was part of a three day festival, and they used three different. They used two churches and a little chapel in Berlin that all mm-hmm. have these types of organs um, with a MIDI input. So. Um, yeah, they just invited me to be part of that. So there were quite a few other composers who were um, also performing for that, and they've done it in other cities as well. So what was it like to play an instrument like that? Like from the pictures that I saw on Twitter, it looked like quite massive. Um, so did the performance feel bigger because the instrument is bigger, if that makes sense? Well, the instrument is huge, but it's not as huge as some of the sound systems I've played on, I would say. (laughs) Um, The thing that's so fascinating about it is that it's just air going through pipes. That's that's all that is making this immense sound, you know, so there's no amplification whatsoever. It's entirely acoustic, and yet it's extremely powerful. And some of the biggest pipes, when you keep them open, you get this kind of ground shaking bass that you would normally only associate with a sound system and this kind of ground shaking bass you know that could be created uh in the 1800s you know like um or i guess they had these you know earlier than that i mean Mm. the organs these organs are less than 100 years old i think um well the one that i played in berlin was actually only from the late 50s because that's a a rebuilt church um post-world war ii but the last concert I did for them was in um, another church that's a much older organ, and apparently the second largest organ in Berlin. Wow. And that one really, when you hit the low note, you can really <laughs> vibrate the room. Um, and so it's, yeah, it's just great to use something that's just a purely acoustic instrument that can really accomplish those nuances like low and high frequencies that you only usually associate with electronic music. Mm. How did you first become interested in organ music? I know you've played piano for a while um, and you've also made obviously an album of organ music. So is it just a natural progression going from piano to organ? Like, is it pretty similar to play them? Well, I've always been really fascinated with organs, but I guess I didn't, I never had a chance to really sit down with one and work with one until um, Gamut Inc. invited me to do the first concert. So I've done two concerts um, in conjunction with them so far. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, and the the first the first time I got to be in the church with the keys <laughs> overnight was, it was like a kind of a real seance or something, you know, just um, there was something very magical and almost satanic about it because I was making really evil sounds <laughs> come out of this organ, you know. <laughs> Um, can you tell me a bit more about your al- album, Organ Studies, which I found really interesting to listen to? Um, maybe you can just tell me a bit more about the making of the album. I know there was a whole sort of thought, obviously, thought process behind it uh, involving like holding a few notes together so that they kind of like morphed and evolved. Sure, that that release, that's something I released during the pandemic just as a digital only thing. Um, that was recorded during a residency in the Netherlands at a studio called Willem Tway. And they actually have some amazing electronic instruments, including some very obscure 
the, the engineer there put together a whole room full of equipment that isn't really supposed to be used to make electronic music. There are things like for for testing electricity and things like this. And But because these technologies are so similar, he put together all these things in a way that could be patched to make music. So there's tons of stuff to play with in there. And I, I was there for a few days. They also have a little pipe organ in the the performance space that's connected to it. And I found that after the first day, I went in the second day to the pipe organ and I just wanted to spend the entire day with that pipe organ. So <laughs> uh, I didn't spend much time with the room full of really obscure stuff because oh. I think that the maybe because the the learning curve is a little higher with that and I didn't want to spend so much of my time learning how to use that stuff. The organ is so direct and I love the sound of it. And this particular organ, although it was very small, so a lot of organs have switches to open and close the groups of pipes. Those are called the stops. Mm-hmm. So it's a re- sort of like switch it on or on or off. But this small organ had these wooden knobs that you pull in and out to open and close the areas of the pipes that allowed you to make it a little more gradual. Uh-huh. So instead of just opening and closing a section, you could sort of, and it's not really meant to be gradual. You're supposed to just pull it out or push it in. But if you do it halfway, it was doing some strange things. So I was really fascinated with that. And my approach was really just to capture the sound of the instrument and not so much try to perform music in the uh-huh. sense of like express something with melodies and chords. really it was it's it's not something i was certain i would actually release because uh it's so strict and so sparse but um i love the sound of it so it was just finding a couple of notes that i could hold and then slowly moving the stops in and out so it would open and close the pipes slowly and just really listening to the frequencies interact so it's much more uh a listening experiment in a, oh. in a way than a compositional experiment, which is kind of how I try to approach everything, really. Yeah, I was going to say, like, it seems like, you know, obviously there was a, a process that went into it, but it wasn't necessarily that you were following, like, this script sort of thing. So I wondered if you would call it a composition or maybe just more of an experiment. Yeah, again, I mean, these words, I don't, I don't really mind. Either one kind of works, right? Yeah. So the... The thing wouldn't be a recording if I didn't sit down and do that. So mm. you can it's fine to say it's a composition, but it's just sort of where am I inserting my decision making into that equation? So I'm not, um, you know, once I've decided on a combination of notes, then I'm not really making any more decisions about notes. Mm. I'm just listening to the sound. In some cases for five minutes, I'm not moving. Um, you know, that's kind of, similar to what happens in the piece that I perform for the gong where yeah. there's no 
expression other than a gradual increase in the intensity mm-hmm. so that um, when I play the gong, I'm just letting the instrument and all its unpredictable frequencies interact without sort of creating an emotional arc by, you know, making something a little louder here, a little quieter there, or playing a little over to the left or a little over to the right. I mean, sometimes I will gradually move around, but it's more like a survey and just listening to what happens on the instrument, you know. I was going to say, uh, I was going to make the connection also with um, having never written a note for percussion. And I wondered sort of about like reinterpretation, like if you were to play this organ studies album out for example, like, would that also be a reinterpretation because you're not like, you wouldn't be following exactly what you did the first time. It would just be sort of trying the same thing and the results might be different, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's not something that I could ever, well, I could potentially perform it in that space, but organs don't move. So that's one thing. The organ, each organ is pretty different. And once they're installed, they don't move. So you know, there are certain similarities with organs. I think I would need to spend a lot more time with organs to feel comfortable performing with them. But at the same time, um, you know, I like this idea of having the MIDI organ because yeah. it's a performance. I'm sitting there with it, but the computer is sort of controlling things. I'm kind of comfortable working that way. I'm comfortable with the computer sort of playing the notes for me. I don't need to necessarily do it with my hands. Yeah. Um so I, I think that, you know, if I was to try and do that piece on a different organ, it would be a different piece because that that release is is just about the sounds of that particular organ and some combinations mm. that I found with that particular organ. You know, right. what can you tell me about the necessity for experimentation or maybe sort of freedom as a as an artist? Like, is it essential for you to just be able to? do these projects with a very sort of conceptual approach rather than like a really static one where you're sort of playing, following along with um, sheet music or something like this? Well, I mean, there's plenty of music that's written out in sheet music that I really love as well. I'm not against that in any sense, against scores or, you know, scripting out something. I think that, and I would actually love to compose, for example, piano music that was completely scored out. I just think that's not really my strength. It's something that I kind of think about a lot and maybe one day I'll have the time to sit down and compose something as a score on piano that I would really you know be happy with. But I think it's just that I don't work as well that way and because even when I'm working with notes it's really sort of the sound first and it's so hard to script or score something that's just sound. Um that for me, it's like the recording is the score. Once it's printed and recorded, that's that's sort of the score. <laughs> but, um, you know, I do tend to be, to get kind of attached to a finished product. Once sort of I finish a track and it's released, something about that process makes it feel finished, even if maybe I wasn't sure when I was getting ready to, you know, put the release together at at a certain point, I guess I get kind of attached to a finished product and then it's hard to change it very much at Mm. that point. And then, so in terms of um, 
note for percussion. Like, yeah, I guess I just wonder about how how it is for you to play, or I guess to reinterpret that with every different time that you do it. Like, do you feel that it's different every time in the same way that you would with the organ because it's a different a different organ each time? Is that piece different every time that you play it? Absolutely, and probably more than just about any other piece because it's so much dependent on the space that it's performed in. Mm. Uh, and that's what I love about the piece because the thing that I'm actually doing is the same. I'm sitting down and trying to play the most gradual crescendo from quiet to loud and back to quiet again. I'm, I'm trying to do exactly the same thing, but it's sort of this idea that I think part of the what's profound about the piece is that it's sort of this idea that no matter how hard you try to do the exact same thing twice, it's never exactly the same. Mm. With that piece, it's really vastly different. It's not just a little different. It's It feels very different in every location that I perform it, depending on the acoustics. And also each gong also just has its own character, you know, a big sheet of you know round sheet of metal um there's a certain of course there are certain characteristics that are similar but when you sit with that kind of constant loud sound of the resonating metal uh you really hear the differences i think i it's so every time i've performed that it's a really different just equally powerful but very different experience In general, do you find that reinterpreting a piece in that way feeds you as much creatively as it does to create your own piece, for example? Yeah, that piece, well, that's the thing. It's it's really interesting to go back to some of those pieces from the 60s and 70s where it, it is also really an interesting play on authorship because... Mm. The score, that, that piece was written down on a postcard. The score of the piece is just a crescendo and a decrescendo mm-hmm. with the, the symbol to hold it for a very long time at the peak. And the even the instrument isn't specified. So, mm. you know, it brings up the question, so James Tenney wrote his name on the postcard and he's given credit for that piece. But... Should he say, say if he was still alive, should he receive royal? I mean, he actually is supposed to receive royalties for any time that piece is performed, but it's sort of like you're just giving him a little credit for the idea. But, you know, like, how is it that you're allowed to take artistic ownership over the idea of a crescendo and a decrescendo? Mm-hmm. You know? That's it. That's interesting. Yeah. And I guess it's like if somebody were to play your organ studies album, I mean, they would obviously give you credit, but there wouldn't really necessarily be a script in the same way that there would be 
with another piece. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Well, there's all kinds of ways to approach a score as well. Some scores are partially open. Some are extremely open. So people write scores that are that have within them all sorts of elements of uh, improvisation and interpretation that are encouraged by the composer. Hmm. And there are other pieces where every tiny detail, like say, like a lot of Stockhausen pieces, even though they sound like they have all this chaos that, you know, he would be extremely precise about every articulation of every sound and every note. So there's many different ways to do it. You know, it can be very free or very strict. So how do you decide when to reinterpret something? And how do you decide when you want to write something yourself? Like, is it just a feeling that you get at the time? Um, like a, your interest is piqued by something and you go for it? Well, there aren't many. I mean, I, I play, I practice and play piano regularly. So I really like to play piano pieces, like find pieces in the classical canon that that maybe are lesser known that really stick out to me. And then I'll spend a year sort of trying to learn a piece. That's sort of a personal thing I do. And so I, I love learning to play other people's music, but you know, there haven't been very many projects that I've recorded and released or performed of other people's music. Um, the James Tenney piece is really the only one. So the other things are more like collaborations and remixes, mm -hmm. which I also enjoy, you know, so um, I like the idea of taking old, say, undiscovered electronic music and trying to sort of rework it somehow. That's also an interesting process, you know. So there's there's a South American composer that is uh, a, a female composer from, from Colombia who's not very well known, who um, created some really interesting music that I was thinking of uh, trying to release on my label. I haven't worked that out yet, but then I was had the idea of trying to rework some of it and include the original and my reinterpretations as well. Mm. I think um, it's interesting to do that as well, like uh, just engaging with the recording of something, um, not necessarily um, performing it as a reinterpretation. So I like that both of those projects, uh, the Oregon Studies album and the James Tenney piece, both sort of take the like building blocks of music, holding these notes and using them to create something that's totally different and unique rather than you know your standard piece of music. Um, so is that the kind of change in outlook that your time uh, at Mills College instills in you? Like you were, in your RA interview, you were talking about approaching music in a new way. Uh, is that what you meant by that? Sure, I think it allowed me to, in some ways, do less and be comfortable with doing less. Hmm. And it's it's kind of paradoxical that you have to study really complicated, you know, compositional processes. I mean, for me, I had to really study that and really understand it before I could sort of let go of the need to compose so much or write so much with melody or chords and these kinds of things. I mean, I, I do still love music with great melodies and great chords, but I'm very picky about it. So I'm usually not happy enough with what I do in that realm to want to include it. So, um, yeah, but, but yeah, like I said, it, it was, it's, it required me to really engage deeply and understand some of the complex ideas behind classical music, jazz, and avant-garde and experimental music before I could actually be comfortable doing less. 
you know, mm. and feel sort of confident in doing less somehow. In your ARI interview, you said that you like to think of music as a living entity that you can observe and communicate with instead of an expression of your own creative impulses. Um, why is that distance important for you? Why is it important? Well, I think it's it's just about at least a sort of an attempt to reduce the constant role of the ego in the production of the music you know like the ego is always going to be there on some level but i guess uh f- for me it's just it's it's just a comfortable space to be in where um as an observer and i think it's also just after so many years it's also just more of my strength i think i can add something that's more um that's more important maybe if i take this approach than if i were to be more involved on the level of writing music note to note phrase to phrase um when i've tried to do that i don't think i end up in a place that's adding something useful or important to the history of music but i found that if i backed up and did this it, something I find that I discover something more profound out of it. Um, to me, that seems really evident in these two pieces and also in the piece that you worked on with Charlemagne Palestine. Um, and as I understand it in that piece with Charlemagne, you're, you're sort of looking for the notes to like interact with each other and like maybe you're facilitating it, but maybe it's also just kind of happening on its own or by nature of the of the instrument. Yeah, that's another case where that's probably he's known for making these very repetitive systematic piano pieces that go on and on and on for hours. But that one that we played together is probably the most systematic because it's really just going, it's just starting with an octave and then just slowly going through every step, every interval of the, so there's, you know, 12 semitones in an, in an octave. So we're playing the octave and then we're going up one semitone and it, um, staying there for some period of time. And with two pianos, there's just so many overtones swirling around that you can really just swim in that interval for a while. And then at a certain point, we move to the next one and it goes from a minor second to a major second. You just went a half step up. And now on two pianos, we're just playing this one interval for a while, but it's a totally new space to be in. Um, and we don't jump or go to another place further away. It's just when we're done with this one area, then we just move up a half step and then spend some period of time there and keep going until you've just gotten through the octaves.
it's it's uh, almost scientific in a way, but mm. at the same time, Charlemagne Palestine's approach is totally unscientific. You know, it's like let's swim in these overtones, like everything that's happening. There's so much chaos, and we don't have to decide like, oh, I want to play this note now. Or I want to play this. Like it's all there to just be a part of. So it's it's like um, and and it's always continuous the way he played and the way he explained it to me was like, imagine atlas holding up the world and you can't let go or the world falls down you know mm -hmm. so once you start playing the piece um you have to keep going because if you stop it's like and before the end it's like you're dropping the the, the world mm. and that's also that gives it this like weight and intensity and um but you're just sort of moving from place to place and just occupying this space just step by step by step by step very systematically you know was it yeah, was it hard to learn how to do that? Like, was it, is that like a totally different way of thinking for you as a performer? It's actually very similar because I, you know, to the Tenny piece and also to the way I work with sound on my own, um, I like to just listen to things for as long as possible. Uh, when I'm kind of trying to do too many things and jumping from one thing to the next to the next to the next, I usually don't get anywhere, but it's when I sort of find a place to stop and listen and let something kind of happen for a while that that's when I get to the point where I, oh, that's the thing. That's, mm. that's, that's what, you know, that's the important thing that I, you know, I'm searching for here. Usually it requires sort of stepping back and being patient rather than doing more or learning something more complicated to do. So it, it definitely ties in that that patience and willingness to just listen to what's happening with the sound for a long period of time and soak it in it's a very similar process previously you've spoken about the importance of a direct physical connection with the instruments that you're playing especially in the case of the tenny piece and also uh in the work you did with charlemagne um so is that direct connection also necessary when you're working on electronic music based productions um like for your first solo album like, did you need to have that sort of direct connection in the same way? No, I think the the thing that that I love about the Tenny piece and working with Charlemagne Palestine is that I get that intense physical connection that I actually don't get mm. when I produce electronic music. So there's something about the approach and the method of listening that is very similar, and there's a huge overlap there. But when I'm producing electronic music, I'm really just changing a few things and then sitting and listen, my body is not important in that process, except for my ears. So, you know, the ears are the thing that are, <laughs> provide the constant physical engagement in mm. all of those cases, but there's a different experience with sort of pairing the ears with another limb of your body that is also essential to that sound, you know? So I think that that type of performance is different is qualitatively different definitely the experience of performing on the gong or on the piano is different than doing a computer-based sound piece mm -hmm. it's a different experience um even if there are some sonic um, similarities so how was it for you to make your first solo album like what were the challenges that you encountered after so many experiments with instruments and also I know that you were working with a computer for a while so I'm not sure what what equipment you used for this album um maybe you can just tell me about that yeah the I mean, the 
I, I have released albums for other projects in the past. So it was, I guess I tried not to make a big deal of it being like the first R. Rose album, but um, I guess it was, but, <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't approach it from a real strong conceptual standpoint. It was just, I wanted to make an album that felt like it sort of summed up what I'd done for seven or eight years with the project mm. and yet alluded to what could come ahead as well. So it wasn't about marking a new, a totally new direction or just like closing the book on the past. I wanted it to be a sort of continuation point. It's, it's made mostly just with a computer, but I, I mean, I have a few synths that I, tend to use, um, the way I work with synthesizers is usually just to spend a few hours with one synthesizer recording and playing it, um, rather than getting, you know, I don't have a studio with a bunch of stuff patched in together, all synced together with a million blinking lights all in sync, you know, like you see a lot on Instagram or whatever, <laughs> like, um, <laughs> that's pretty impressive when you see those studios, but I just don't really work well that way. So I tend to kind of go one layer at a time. And I just like to sit with, like I have a little Buchla easel synthesizer, which is a small thing, but a very nice sounding synthesizer and mm -hmm. doesn't have that many controls on it, but it always does something unique when I sit down with it. So I can just say, oh, today I'm going to spend a few hours with this Buchla and then I just play that thing for a few hours and see where it goes. And usually I end up with something that becomes kind of the inspiration for a track, you know, or a piece. In some cases I've made things where just the bukla alone is enough, but then sometimes, some, you know, sometimes it's just like the starting point or it inspires uh, a track where I can build a like rhythm around it and, mm. and do something with that. Um, sometimes I just start with the computer and, and do everything there as well, because there are a lot of synthesizers inside the computer that I really like as well. So. I love this album and I really love the abstraction and the noise, which on some tracks kind of comes in a bit suddenly um, and others where it's more of a slow change or sort of this evolution. Um, and you've mentioned previously that you wanted to stop relying on sort of classic song structure. Um, so why is that? Well, I, I guess that I have over the years, just of doing this project in the last 10 years, I think that I've veered more and more away from yeah, arranging the kind of build up and breakdown mm -hmm. and letting something happen for an even longer period of time. But that that thread was always there from the beginning, I think. And there was always a, a lot of restraint in how I 
crafted a kind of uh, something like a buildup or a breakdown in a track, like a climax. I think there are always these climactic moments, but I try to have, have them in a way, like it's never just one climax and over. Like there's always sort of more than one strain or more than one line of tension that's kind of moving in different directions or at least that's what i try and do so that if you reach something that seems like a climax it maybe it's actually going to keep going or building just it's about building this kind of intensity and tension and in different ways so um i think that in some tracks i've done things that when i listen to now they, they are they sound to me a little bit predictable but then they tend to be very effective on a dance floor, for example. But I, I'm, I'm, I try to notice that that boundary. You know, I there when I'm collecting tracks to DJ, for example, if the kinds of um, arrangement is too obvious, where the way it cuts out the bass drum and brings it back in and cuts out the elements, it comes back mm. in. If it's very predictable, that turns me off. You know, mm. so. Um, so I, I just try and be aware of those things. And I more and more, I make tracks these days where I feel like I don't even need to have any kind of a break in it. Like it could just be one thing that's kind of growing and then dissipating at the end. And that might be enough. You mm. know? Have you also changed the way that you create a track? Like I know that you're talking about the, the actual final product being different, but the way that you, you know, for example, when you were making music as Sutek, is the way that you're composing music now different, like your actual creative approach? Actually, the first tracks that I made as Sutek were much more patient in a way and much more true to maybe like the ethos of the kind of tech, techno that inspires me, you know, of it's just sort of like this thing happening. It's not necessarily constantly being edited, but I got more and more into editing and arranging over the years. So by the sort of later period of, making music as Sutek, I was really into this kind of hyper editing process where I would just get really into editing each bar and making little tricky changes with rhythms. And so the whole thing was heavily edited. And I think that I, you know, I still get really, really into the details bar to bar, but not in the sense of arranging rhythms and stuff. It's more like I'm really paying attention to smooth changes in different parameters and frequencies and things like that. So I still do pay that close attention moment to moment, but not in the sense of like cutting out chunks of things, making drastic and sort of unpredictable changes throughout. Mm -hmm. So that kind of chopped up style of editing, that's not something that I'm doing these days, mm. you know, but I, there are still tracks that, do that that I like that you know it can be accomplished it's not something that I'm against but I think that I just enjoy working in this way now mm. you know? in another interview you said that your focus these days is on experimenting listening and evaluating the experience of listening I really like that and I wonder how your interest in listening informs the way that you perform your own music or approach your music I think I come back to that again and again to just say that my ears and the listening experience is the most important thing in the process that's of music making, that's of DJing, that's of, I mean, going out to hear music. But 
I think people don't always think of that as being the first thing when it comes to making music. But but I think of I think of that as the most important is the listening process. Mm. Uh, and if you put listening first, then it allows you to just be more patient. And I think that's that's when you discover these kind of at least that's when I discover these more profound interactions that occur when I'm not trying as hard to make it happen, you know? Mm. Um, And it, I mean, it also, in a practical sense, it's also just that I'm not so great with my hands. I didn't learn to play an acoustic instrument as a kid. Mm. I didn't generate that kind of muscle memory with my fingers. So I just don't have those skills, you know? So, I mean, in a way I would love to be able to play the piano virtuosically and be able to make those moment to moment decisions as well and play things um, that were more about my hands and fingers, but I just, I just don't have those skills. Mm. You know? Would you say that the way you listen has changed much over the years? Yeah, I think it's been, but it's been gradual. Like I've always been interested, even when I was making hyper cut up music, I was still interested in long form experimental music that was relatively unchanging for long periods of time. And I still enjoyed listening to that music and going to concerts of that kind of music. Mm. But I guess that things have just all started to move more in that direction of patience and gradual change. Um, but it's not, it's not like a, it, it, it seems like a, a sort of natural and sort of slow evolving progression from the time I started making music to now, mm. you know. And how do you hope that that progression continues? Well, I don't have any real projections for how it's going to change. I'm pretty happy with this approach now. I, I could, you know, I could, I definitely see myself again, drifting away from club music at some point, mm. but I'm, you know, I'm happy that it's a part of my life now and I'm happy that I can go between clubs and other venues and other listening environments. It's nice to have that flexibility. So I don't feel tied to one thing or the other, and that's, that's a good place to be. So um, I guess, you know, I do have these sort of visions of having a place where I could have a really nice piano and maybe spending more time trying to compose piano music in the future in five, 10 years or something like that, like out in the woods somewhere. That's a little vision of mine, but um, we'll see. been listening to our rose for air podcast episode 38 we'll be back on the last wednesday of every month so check back in october for another episode in the meantime you can follow us on instagram at, at underscore air podcast or subscribe with our patreon at patreon.com slash air podcast if you're enjoying air and you want to hear more stories like these ones check out bear radio berlin's english-speaking podcast network 
Air is produced in partnership with Bear Radio, which is home to 24 other podcasts and dozens of episodes for you to enjoy. So head over to bearradio.org to listen. Thanks for tuning in this month and see you again in October. <laughs>